And so we get here in verse 39, and we're going to cover this morning as we continue with the criminals. It says in verse 39, Then one of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed Jesus, saying, If you are the Christ, save yourself and us. But the other, answering, rebuked him, saying, Do you not even fear God, seeing you are under the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Now it was about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour. Then the sun was darkened, and the veil of the temple was torn in two. And when Jesus had cried out with a loud voice, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Jesus willingly giving up his life. There's a lot to unpack here as we go through this. I know it's only a few verses, but, but there's so much. The very first thing that we see in verse 39 is the criminal who is being crucified himself jumps right into the mockery of the other soldiers and people who are down below blaspheming Jesus. Jumps right into it. And so these criminals, well, who are they? We know them to be uh, thieves, as one of the other Gospels um, points out, robbers, highwaymen, bandits, you know, kind of a cool name, um, but, but robbers. They're the kind of thieves that you would see um, Kind of like in the Good Samaritan case, if you guys remember that. You know, not the kind of robber that was, you know, nice and would just steal your stuff, but no, that would kind of to truly like beat you up and, and leave you for dead. This is what happened in the Good Samaritan story. And so these highwaymen, they would swoop down on lonely groups. And this is why oftentimes people would travel in big groups just to protect themselves from these types of criminals. They would swoop down on lonely groups who would travel from Jerusalem to Jericho they would strip them of their possessions. They would beat them. They would basically leave them for dead. Okay? So here we've got these two thieves, these two robbers, these two criminals who are there of their own accord. They deserve what they, because of what they have done, right? We understand this. We understand the justice system, right? Even in America, even though you may think, and I'm sure there is, you know, injustice in some places of it, but in, in a specific general, like, in a general sense, we understand that the justice system is there to serve justice, right? So if you do something wrong, you get punished for that wrong. And there's different severities for it, correct? If you steal a piece of gum, it's not the same severity as if you murder someone. We understand this as common sense. The justice system is good. Justice is good. So these men, they deserve what they have done right? They left people for dead. They robbed. They, they thieved. Okay, well, this is their punishment. Or as one of the criminals says, this is our reward. This is what we've earned. But Jesus, as we're going to see and as we have seen, he's done absolutely nothing wrong. And the amazing thing is that one of these criminals recognizes that. And we'll get to that in a second. But here in verse 39, one of the the, what he says is blasphemy. He says, if you are the Christ, how is he to prove himself? What does he say? If you are Jesus Christ, if you are the Son of God, 
This is how you can prove yourself that you are the Son of God. And what does he say? Save yourself and save us. Right? If, if you are the Christ, prove it by saving yourself and us. Because the Christ, the Son of God, has the ability to do anything. So why would you not then save yourself from this predicament? And what they think, and what often many thought, and even what I think Satan even thought of himself, is that when Jesus was crucified, that Satan won. That when Jesus was crucified, that Jesus failed. Right? So Satan thinks he won by Jesus failing. These people who are blaspheming Jesus, saying that if you are the Christ, save yourself, And if he doesn't save himself by him dying, then Jesus has lost. Then Jesus is a failure. Because what son of God would allow that to happen? If you are truly the son of God, that's what you would do. But again, here's the the misconception, right? That Jesus, by Jesus dying, he's a failure. But what they don't realize is that by Jesus dying is he's victorious. It's not a failure. And many people assume this, and what they don't understand is that Jesus' death was victory. Colossians 2, verses 13 through 15 says this. It says, You being dead in your trespasses, in the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses or sins, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. What they don't realize is that by Jesus not saving himself, he actually saves us in the process. And that was the whole thing, right? It wasn't about Jesus saving himself and taking himself off the cross. No, Jesus wanted to and willingly died to save us. So if if Jesus were to prove himself as son of God in the way that this criminal asked him to by by taking himself off the cross and saving him and the man and the criminals, what the criminals would fail to realize is that they wouldn't truly be saved. Right? They would still be dead in their sins. And one of them is going to find out over this six-hour period, they're going to change their mind, they're going to repent, And they're going to realize that this truly is the Son of God. And he's going to go, as we see in verse 40, he says, but the other answering rebuked the other man. And he said, do you not even fear God, seeing you're under the same condemnation? So he's hearing and he's realizing the blasphemy, but there's this transformation that's happened, and he's like, this is truly the Son of God. And so he challenges and he rebukes the other guy, saying, dude, don't you fear God? This is God. But here's the kicker. This same guy who is saying this, the, the good criminal, let's call him that, he actually joined in the mocking of Jesus at the very beginning of all this. We see this in, in Matthew's account and Mark's account. In Matthew 27 and Mark 15, it indicates that both criminals were mocking Jesus. So here they are. They're, they're all lifted up on the cross. At the very beginning, both of these criminals, side by side, are mocking Jesus. But in the hours spent on the cross, there's this transformation that happens in one of those criminals. And he truly sees Jesus for who he is. And he sees things differently. He understands things differently. And ultimately, as we see this morning, he's going to put his trust in Jesus. And there's a change. 
He goes from mocking Jesus to rebuking the other guy who is mocking Jesus. He goes from mocking Jesus to now fearing him. There's a reverence, there's a respect, because he understands who he's, who he's in the presence of now. I mean, that, that, that's a huge thing for us, guys. So in verse 41, it says, We indeed, he continues to say to the other criminal, We indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. This perspective that this guy has is one of the best perspectives that you can have in life. This perspective is the same perspective that Paul had himself. And this guy got it in a matter of hours being with Jesus. He rightfully understood who he was, who he was, his own self, the criminal. He understood that he was a criminal, that he was a sinner, that he was bad, that he was wicked, that he deserved exactly what was due for him. He said, this is my reward for my deeds. I deserve this. That's a realization of, I'm a sinner, I'm fallen, I'm broken, I'm dead. And I think many of us have to come to that place, because many of us have not, where we don't see ourselves as such. And when that doesn't happen, we become like the other criminal who starts to blaspheme and mock God. Because we think of ourselves better than than what we truly are. We're blinded to the truth of who we really are. And so he realizes not just who he is at that moment, but at the same moment realizing who Jesus is. And so now there's a reverence for God because he realizes this is God who is receiving this unjust punishment. He says, this man has done nothing wrong. And this, this changes everything for him because here he sees Jesus' demeanor. He, he sees you know, his actions, his words. He sees everything that he is doing and he's recognizing it as love because any normal person would be pleading for their life. They would, you know, they would uh, be angry, right? You know, here you are unjustly receiving something that you didn't do. People are making fun of you. They're spitting on you. You'd want to retaliate, yada, yada, yada. But no, Jesus is doing the complete opposite. He's like, no, Father, forgive them. He's loving them. He's, he's not opening his mouth. He's not, he's not backlash. He's, you know, he's not saying anything against them. This is true love and action, and this man is transformed by it and sees it and comes to the realization of the truth that I'm a sinner and he's a savior. He's God. So he looks over to Jesus, and I love this because Jesus, Jesus died for every single person, every single one. If I were to put myself in this position, which I, I can't really, but I'm hypothetically, in Jesus' position, I would be thinking, this is really hard. I'm dying for, you know, every single person. You know, I, I'm focused on this part of what I'm doing. I can't be bothered by this criminal right now who's on my side saying these things to me. I guess what I'm trying to say is, like, Jesus literally has every single person in mind to the point where he is on the cross being crucified, dying, he's being mocked, beaten, spit upon, and he has the time 
to hear and listen and give attention to this one guy, this one measly criminal who says to him in verse 42, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. I'd be like, guy, I'm busy right now dying for the sins of the world. I, I can't be bothered with this right now. But this puts into perspective that, that Jesus cares about every single person, even this unnamed criminal who was crucified with Jesus. He says, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus is going to respond to him. He says, surely I say to you today, you'll be with me in paradise. So what's happening here in verse 42? There's a recognition that Jesus is who he says he is. That is what we need to come to. God has revealed himself to mankind. It's just a matter of, do I believe that or not? Do I accept it? Do I reject it? God reveals himself in so many different ways. He's revealed himself through, through history. He's revealed himself, he reveals himself through creation. It's very evident that we serve a creator. That, that life did not just happen from nothing. You have to be either absolutely stupid or completely, openly, purposefully reject God if you believe that we came from nothing. Those are the only two options. And really, the first option is not even one. It's, it's really the second option, is that you willfully reject the notion, the, not even the idea, the fact that there is a creator just by seeing life in and of itself. So God reveals him in that way, but God also reveals himself mainly through what? Through the word. He also reveals himself through the church. We, the church, are a representation of him. Do you know that's, that's why they call the church the body of Christ? Have you guys ever seen Jesus? No, neither have I. I've never seen the literal body of Jesus. Why is that? Well, because after he died, he was resurrected. But then he, after he resurrected, he was ascended back into heaven to, to, to sit at the right hand of the Father. So in Jesus' literal absence is now us, the church. We are the picture of Jesus. That's, that's why we're called the body of Christ. And so the body of Christ reveals Jesus. But again, mainly the word of God reveals who Jesus is. And we have to come to this belief, this faith, that as Jesus reveals himself to us, that we believe him for who he says he is. That was the whole thing. That's the whole thing about what's happening here, is they didn't believe who he said he was. But there are very few who do, like this criminal. He comes to the realization that, yeah, they mock him saying this is the, the king of the Jews, but then he realizes, no, he actually is the king of the Jews. And then, as we're going to get into next week in verse 47, it says, when the centurion saw what had happened, he glorified God, saying, certainly this was a righteous man. He came to the realization that Jesus is who he says he is. And that changes everything. Because as we realize who Jesus is, it puts into perspective of who we are. It puts us into the perspective of, I'm a criminal. I'm a thief. I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a sinner in need of a Savior, of the Messiah. So we finally grasp the truth about Jesus. And he realizes a couple of things. He realizes that Jesus is God. And he rightfully calls him Lord. But two, he also realizes that Jesus' kingdom is not of this world. 
He says, remember, remember me when you come into your kingdom. So in reality, when it comes to all of us and who has ever lived and who lives currently, we're, we're one of two of these criminals. We're either the one who mocks Jesus and, and rightfully denies who he is, like, like we, we purposely deny who he is. None of us are ignorant, right? Romans uh, chapter 1 says, um, what does it say again? Let me find it really quick. Romans chapter 1, it says, give me one second, I need to find it. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. That no one lives this life and dies and stands before Jesus and says, I had no idea. We all live this life either believing who he is or rejecting who he is, but we all know who he is. Does this make sense? Because what the Bible tells us is that those who are not walking with the Lord, those who are not born again, what they do is they're not ignorant, they're not, you know, blind to it in that sense, but that they suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Meaning that they know the truth, but you just don't want to believe it because you'd rather continue in unrighteousness. I mean, I, I know you know this because you've probably experienced this on a, on a more specific you know, level of, rather than just with Christ. But for instance, like I know sometimes you know what to do that's right. Like you know that it's right. It's good to do something. But have you ever chosen not to do that? Because you'd rather do what you would want to do and it ends up being not the right thing? This is what's happening with a lot of people is that they know the truth but they suppress it in unrighteousness. So they're like the one criminal who mocks Jesus because they don't want to believe what he says about himself. But then you have those of us, the church, who, be- who knows the truth as well, but believes it. And that's where our faith comes in, is that my faith is in Jesus Christ, and I believe who he says he is. We all have faith. Every single person, the side of the people who suppress the truth and unrighteousness, they have faith, but it's not in the, and it's not that faith is not presented into the right person, or ob- the object of their faith is not the right person. So you've got the one that's mocking, that's rejected the truth and unrighteousness, and then you've got the other who has now repented and put their faith in Jesus. And he says, Remember me when you come into your kingdom. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. This reminds me of the story of Joseph. Do you guys remember Joseph's life? It was kind of crazy, to be honest. And in one of the instances in Joseph's life, he's, he's thrown into prison. He's thrown into prison. He's in there for a few years. And as he's in prison, some of his cellmates kind of cycle through. You know, you've got some that come and go. And one of those being uh, Pharaoh's cupbearer. At one point, he was... Uh, Joseph's fellow prisoner 
And the cupbearer had a dream, and G Joseph interpreted that dream, and it was brought before Pharaoh. And um, Actually, no, I'm sorry. That's not true. Ultimately, what happened... Oh, you know what, guys? I can't even remember, but that's okay. The point being is that the cupbearer was a fellow prisoner with Joseph. The cupbearer gets freed, but before he gets freed, Joseph tells him, Remember me when it is well with you, and please show kindness to me. Make mention of me to Pharaoh and get me out of prison. Basically saying, Re remember the good that I I've done for you, and then when you become a free man, come back and, and, and help me. You know, basically give me what I, I, I'm due in a sense. You know, I, I helped you, you helped me. And so this, this criminal now is basically saying the same thing. He says, Lord, remember me when you depart. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. This is a profession of faith, right? And it's an amazing display of faith because it's in the midst of such darkness and agony. That he went from mocking Jesus to now displaying a great and amazing faith in Jesus. All in the time that they have been hanging on the cross together. And so here what we see a few things that he confesses his sins. right? Because he tells the other guy, don't, don't mock him. You should be fearing him. We are receiving what's rightfully due for us. We're receiving that reward. right? We see that in verse 41. That's a confession of his sins. It's a recognition of his sins. Does he repent? Does he show faith? Because those are the two things that we see in the scripture for us to be born again, for us to be in God's kingdom, for us to join him in paradise, is for a person to believe and repent. All throughout scripture, you see that. Peter preaches an amazing sermon. People say, what, what must we do to be saved? He says, repent. Romans 10.9 says, if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus rose from the dead, that you'll be saved. It's faith. So then, then the question begs, well, which one do we need to do? Which do we need to have to be saved? Do we need to repent? Or do we need to have faith? Right? Because we see in Scripture, you're saved by grace through faith and not of works. But then you read all throughout John and it says, repent and you'll be saved. It has, doesn't say anything about faith. So what is it? Is it faith or repentance? And I'll tell you, it's both. And they're one and the same. And I'll tell you how they're one and the same. It's kind of like a quarter. A quarter has two sides, right? You've got the face and you've got the tails. I don't know what the other side is. The face and what's the other side? Heads and tails, I said faith, face. It is actually a face, though. You got heads and tails, right? You've got, one, you got two sides, but it's the same quarter. So here, faith and, and repentance, they're, they're, they're two sides of the same coin. And here's how this works. Repentance is what? It, a simple definition of repentance is to change your mind. Change your mind. And faith is what? Very simply, to trust. So this is what's happening, and this is why when we see in Scripture that they either need to repent or they need to have faith, you can't have one without the other. They're, they're, they're together. Okay. So what I'm doing by repenting is I'm changing my mind, kind of like what happened here with this criminal. At the very beginning, he was mocking Jesus. He did not believe that he was who he said he was. So what he does is over time, the truth is finally revealed to him, and he changes his mind. He no longer mocks, 
But now he believes. And by changing his mind, what is happening is he's putting his trust in Jesus. So again, repentance is a change of mind. Faith is trust. He's changed his mind about who Jesus is by believing Jesus is who he says he is. While everyone else mocked this title, this thief believed it. Oftentimes we think of repentance as a change of action, right? Like if you're truly repentant, you're no longer going to be doing the one thing, that, that, that thing that you repented of, right? And in a sense, that's true because a change of mind leads to a change of actions. But what happens here with this man is he's on the cross and he never gets to be able to display that change of action, right? Oftentimes I can tell with you guys, with myself, with my kids, that if they are truly repentant, if they have truly changed their mind on something, that it will lead into action. It's kind of like when we say, I'm sorry. Well, how do you prove you're sorry besides just saying, I'm sorry? You don't do the thing that you were sorry about, that, that made you say that you were sorry, right? Like, let's say I, I, I push you, right? And then I go and I apologize and I say, you know, I'm sorry. I, I won't ever do that again. But then I push you again. Was I really sorry to begin with? Maybe. Might have been. Maybe in the moment. But repentance is not just being sorrowful. Again, what does that have to do with? A change of mind. So if you say, I've repented, well, then it's going to show in your action. Right? It's going to show in your action. But this man never had the ability or the chance to show that. But that doesn't mean that he didn't repent. Because repentance is not just what we see. It's what's happening in here. That I've changed my mind and what I once trusted in. I either trust in anything but Jesus or I've changed my mind now and I trust in Jesus. And when I do that, there is a change of person. There's a change of action. That once I, what I once did, you know, I used to cuss, I used to do this. Now I don't. I, I've, I've changed my mind. I've put my trust in Jesus and with that comes a transformation. I'm no longer who I once was. So Jesus' response to him is this. He says, Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Jesus gives him the time of the day. And more than that, he listens to him. He hears him. He forgives him. He shows him grace. This is, this is why Jesus is on the cross. For criminals, for both of those criminals, but for the criminal that has repented and put his faith in Jesus, there is a reward in that. And he says, you will join me in paradise, not torment. Paradise is actually a, a Persian word. It comes from a Persian word. And among the Persians, it, was a, it spoke of a grand enclosure or preserve, a hunting ground, um, a park. It was always shady, well-watered. You'd have wild animals. They were kept for hunt. It was just, it, it, it spoke of like a garden, a very pleasant garden. Very similar, if not exactly like the Garden of Eden. is what we would call paradise. We see this in, in Genesis chapter 2, verse 8. The same word is, is used. And so when he says that you will join me in paradise, it's, it's speaking of something that is in the presence of Christ, in God, 
right? Because that is what made the Garden of Eden paradise, right? It was more than just being able to snuggle up against a lion and not be devoured. It was more than just the beauty of it. It was what? What was so amazing that we saw happen with Adam and Eve in the midst of the garden? God did what? He walked with them. When they sinned, they were kicked out. But that is what made paradise paradise. Now, there is everything that we think of paradise, you know, like, it's beautiful, it's grand, it's glorious, it's pleasant. Like, yeah, but ultimately it's because of the presence of God. And so it's likened unto the Garden of Eden, but in the Garden of Eden was God's presence. And when we sinned, we, we lost that. We lost being able to be in the midst of God's presence. And so he says to him, look, you will be with me today in paradise. Gosh, what a, what a wonderful exclamation. What a wonderful thing. Like, here's a man who has repented and put his faith. And what we realize is when we're born again, guys, we, we have a second life. Right? This isn't this YOLO type thing where you only live once. No, for born again believers, like we have a second life. And it's a good life. It's a life of paradise. It's a life in the presence of God. But it only comes from our repentance and our faith in Him. Jesus did not turn to the other guy who was mocking Him and rejecting Him and said, you will join me in paradise. That doesn't mean that Jesus didn't love the other guy, but there was the option to recognize the truth of who Jesus was and He rejected. He rejected that free gift of forgiveness and grace. And so when Jesus dies, remember, he's, he's dead for how many days? Three days, right? In the midst of those three days, does anybody know what he's doing? Is he taking a nap? No? Is he just dead and like not there until he reappears? No. What we find out from Scripture is Jesus had a, a purpose and a mission within those three days. And what he does is even before the resurrection of Jesus that those who had died before Jesus was resurrected, because there was no uh, victory over death yet, so they were dead, is that every single person went to a place known as, anyone know? Huh? Abraham, someone say Abraham's bosom? Yeah, that's, that's good. But there's a, another technical name for it. Anyone know? Because not every single person went to Abraham's bosom. It was Hades. Or Sheol. Hades or Sheol. And Sheol had two compartments within it. So everyone who died before the resurrection of Jesus went into one of these two compartments. One was for the righteous, one was for the unjust. Okay, again, the, the same uh, dividers between all people throughout all time. We've got the mocking criminal and the believing criminal. You've got the, the righteous and the unrighteous. You've got the dead, you know, and the, and the, the living. You've got those who have put their faith in Christ and those who have rejected Christ. So two compartments, again, one for the righteous, one for the unrighteous. We get this from Luke chapter 16, if you guys remember the story with uh, the beggar named Lazarus. You guys remember Lazarus? This is not the same guy who was brought forth from the dead. So there was a certain rich man in verse, six, verse 19. He was clothed in purple, fine linen. He fared sumptuously every day. The dude was rich. He had it well off. He had a good life. But there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who was laid at his gate, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. 
Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. So it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. Okay, so the, the beggar, he did not go to Abraham's bosom or paradise because he was poor his whole life. And God was now giving him what he didn't get in, on, on earth. That's not the point here. The point is this uh, poor man must have put his faith in Jesus Christ because it is faith in Jesus that gives us righteousness. And so because of that, the angels, it says, take him to Abraham's bosom, but the rich man also died and was buried. Now, the rich man doesn't go to uh, Hades because he was rich. It was because he rejected Jesus. So in being in torments, sorry, it was that the uh, beggar died, was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And being in torments in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham from afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried, and he said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. This is the complete opposite of paradise. And Abraham said, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things. But now he is comforted and you are tormented. And besides all this, between us and you there is a great goal fixed, so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. Then he said, I beg you, therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. And Abraham said to them, They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. This guy's like, I don't want my family coming here because it is horrendous. I'm being tormented every single day. He says, please, like, let Lazarus be resurrected to go tell my family and to warn them to believe in Jesus. And Abraham says, no. He says, even if we did that crazy, miraculous miracle, they still would not believe. Why is that? It's because miracles are not what causes us to repent and believe. They're amazing. But majority of the miracles that we see in Scripture, people did not then confess Repent and believe. Very, very few did. He says, if they have already rejected the words of God for the re revelation of the prophets, they will definitely not believe a dead man, even though you think it's going to be miraculous and that they would be like, whoa, let's totally believe in this now. No, because what's more powerful than a miracle is God's words. And they've rejected God's words. This is what Abraham is saying to him. But the point being is that there's this place of torment called hell. We're finding this in, in, in you know, we, we've got this Abraham's bosom, two compartments. You've got Hades. You've got paradise. You've got the righteous. You've got the unrighteous. And so when Jesus dies on the cross, he actually goes there. And what does he do? 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 and 19 tells us, I'm coming in for close. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just, Jesus, for the unjust, you and me, that he might bring us to God. Remember, that's what makes paradise paradise, God, his presence. That's what the whole point of the cross was, to bring us back to where we once were, like Adam and Eve walking in paradise with God. Being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit, by whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison. What did he preach as he went down there? Did, did he preach? He preached the gospel. 
But did he preach the gospel in a sense that these people who had lived in the Old Testament and died and rejected and did not put their faith in, in God, is he now giving them a second opportunity to repent and believe? No, he's not. Because you, in one sense, you only live once and you only get one shot at this. And everyone has the same shot. Everyone's given the same uh, revelation of who God is. And you can either accept or reject. And if they've rejected, well, that is where you stand for eternity. And so what he does is he preaches the gospel, but the gospel in the sense of victory. This is what has just been accomplished. I have just died on the cross for the, the sins of mankind. It says in verse, uh, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 8 through 9, it says, Jesus said, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and also gave gifts to men. Now this he ascended, what does it mean that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth? So what happens is those who were in Abraham's bosom or paradise were brought into, I would say, a greater paradise into the presence of God in heaven. They were resurrected with him into heaven or, or ascended into heaven. It's probably a better way I could say that. But now that Jesus has died and resurrected and he's sitting in the right hand at the right hand of the Father, we no longer go to this place of Abraham's bosom. We go directly to heaven, right? Paul says this many times. He says, for I'm hard pressed between the two having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better, Philippians 1.23, but also 2 Corinthians 5.8. We're confident, yes, well-pleased, rather to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So now, as New Testament Christians, and when I say New Testament, I'm meaning in the time of history after Jesus has resurrected, that's who we are. When we die, we don't go to this holding place, however you want to call it. We go directly into the presence of God in heaven. So he says, today you'll be with me in paradise. For those of us who have put our faith in him just like this criminal, we will be in, the, in a moment from one breath to another, we will be in paradise with him. But that is only if you believe in Jesus and what he has done on the cross.